0: In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, we find the Word of God record what many believe to be a hymn in the early church. It had reached the status of hymn because it has such important things to say. And we want to look into this text this morning and see what God would say to us. God speaks to us through the Word and he speaks to us through music. Now, I don't know the tune to this hymn, and I don't think anyone else does either. And even if I did, I would spare you my singing. But what we do want to see is a rich theological truth that is communicated in this about God's faithfulness and the importance of our faithfulness to Him. Now, please look with me at the 11th verse And I want you to notice what the Scripture says. Here is a worthy saying. If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we disown Him, He will disown us. If we are faithless, He will remain faithful, for He cannot disown Himself. This hymn contains a series of couplets, where it talks about the relationship of the first part of a phrase to the second part of a phrase. And the first two phrases are kind of significant because they're talking about our future with Jesus Christ. Notice the Scripture talks about dying with Him and living with Him. Now, it sounds almost paradoxical, doesn't it? When the Scripture talks about the fact that we will die with Jesus Christ... What is it saying? What does the Scripture mean when it says we will die with Him? When we look at this principle, it brings to mind what Paul wrote in the book of Romans. Because in the book of Romans, our death with Christ speaks of our spiritual union with Him. In fact, Romans chapter 6, verse 5 says this, If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. For we know that the old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be done away with. And then it goes on to say this, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, but anyone who has died has been freed from sin. I want you to think about the meaning of this passage. We have died with Jesus Christ. When you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, what the Word of God is telling you is this. You are united with Him. So what is true of Christ is true of you. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross, because we're united with Him, and because He was victorious over sin on the cross, and we're united with Him, we share in that victory. We have died with Christ. We are united with Him. And the Scripture brings this so clearly together as to something that it should mean for us today. And you know what that is? If I have died with Christ, then I should live for Him. It should change the way I live, the way I behave. As believers, we need to understand that Receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Savior should bring transformation. It should be something that that causes change in our life. So as believers, because we have died to sin, we should also know that we are alive to God and that God has made us alive to His truth and faithfulness and we should change the way we live. But you know, the Scripture goes on. In Romans chapter 8, it says this, If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Now, I want you to look at the similarity between this and what the Apostle Paul states here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Here is a trustworthy statement, If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. Identical statements, aren't they? But notice what this text goes on to say. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Two applications in this passage. First application, you have died to sin, so don't allow sin control over your life. But second application is this, we have eternity to look forward to. Because we have died with Jesus Christ, the Word of God is telling us that we have eternal life, we will live with Him forever. Now sometimes people are asked, where will you spend eternity? And when they're asked that, many people will say, well, I hope that I make it to heaven. And when they say hope, they're not using the biblical concept of hope, of a confident expectation. Their idea is, man, I hope I've done enough to somehow get there. You know what the Word of God is telling us in this passage and other passages? If you are united with Christ, that question is settled. You don't need to have wishful thinking. You don't need to say, I guess I would go to heaven. You can know and not be presumptuous. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says this. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can guess that you have eternal life. Right? No. So that you can know, that you may know that you have eternal life. We can say with confidence that I have passed from death to life. If we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. And that's something that we can hope in. And I want you to think about the life that we have to look forward to that this scripture speaks of. It's written in future tense if we have died, we will live. And what will life be like for us in the future? God gives us a glimpse of this. In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, God reveals this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. What a hope that is. That's what we have to look forward to because we have died with Christ. We will live with Him. And the Scripture describes that as eternal life. But then look at the next couplet. Verse 12, if we endure with him, or if we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, I want you to think about what's being communicated here. And somehow I have missed a slide. I need to back that up if you guys can for me. Um, The idea is this. If we endure with Jesus Christ, we will reign with him. Think about what the scripture is telling us. The Scripture is telling us here about our reward. Where if we die with Him, we will live with Him communicates our eternal destiny. Here, if we endure with Him, we will reign with Him. It describes our reward. Understand this. In God's kingdom, Jesus Christ will have a literal rule here on earth. As... Those who are united with Christ, do you know that the Bible teaches we will reign with Him as a part of that rule here on earth? But here's what we need to recognize as far as our reward, ruling with Christ. The responsibilities that we're given in reigning with Christ will be based on our endurance right here, right now. Your assignment for the thousand-year reign of Christ as you reign with Him is contingent on your personal performance here. Your salvation rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Your reward rests in what you do to build on that foundation of faith that God has given you. And that's the distinction that's made here. That's why endurance is tied to reigning. We need to understand that God gives us these responsibilities. I love this text in Luke chapter 19, verse 17. It's a parable where servants were given amounts of money that they were to invest, and they did so. And each one was evaluated by what they had done with that money. And finally, the Lord speaks, and He says this, well done, my good and faithful servant, to one who was good with his money. And look at the statement that follows. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Do you see the principle for the kingdom? Because you were faithful in what I gave you to do here, you will have greater responsibility here. So when... 2 Timothy talks about if we endure, we will reign with Him. It's this principle. It's carrying out the idea that our faithfulness here will affect what we do as a reward during the thousand-year reign of Christ. That should be something that motivates us, shouldn't it? If I really want to do something that counts and that lasts or longer than the short span of time that God gives me here on this earth. I should be thinking about kingdom things. I shouldn't get so bogged down in the things of this world that I forget all about the kingdom. I shouldn't put all of my energy in the things of this world and the things of this life to the exclusion of what God will have me do during the kingdom. I should be committed, engaged, involved because what I do now will affect what I do then. And we need to understand that. And we need to live in light of that truth. The Apostle Paul understood this. A little bit later in the book of 2 Timothy, as Paul is writing some closing thoughts, he knew that his execution was soon. He would be martyred for his faith. And look at what he says in 2 Timothy 4.7. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have longed for His appearing. Crowns were rewards for champions. And what he was saying in this text is this. I have stayed the course. I'm facing martyrdom and I haven't given up and God will reward me with a crown. I hope that each person in this auditorium, in this sanctuary, will receive a crown. That should be our goal. And again, not so we can hold our crowns up and say, Look at what I did, but that we might honor Christ with those crowns, and that we might hear at the end of our lives, Well done. How many people here want to appear before God and say, hear Him say, you know, you could have and should have done better? I don't. We all want to hear well done. And our obedience to Him and our commitment to serving Him will bring that into play. Now as we move on through the text, we come to the second half of the passage, the hymn that we're looking into. And what we see are some precautions concerning those who turn away. And notice what we find as we come to the second half of that twelfth verse. If we disown Him, He will also disown us. Now, the Scripture in this text is sharing with us the idea that we as believers need to look seriously at what happens to those who disown or deny the Lord Jesus Christ. It puts us very much in mind of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33. Whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before his Father in heaven. So when we look at this text... Immediately, what comes to mind is this what does disown mean? What the NIV translates as disown is really from a Greek word that's probably better translated deny, refuse, or even reject. In fact, it's a word that was used of Peter's denial of Christ when he denied him three times. You remember the story. Jesus was talking about how the disciples would all scatter and how they would turn away from the Lord. And Peter said, everyone else may abandon you, but I won't. Remember what Jesus' response to Peter was? In case you forget, Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 31. Simon, Simon Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times, or you will deny three times that you know me. Same exact word that's used in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. So what's it communicating then when it says, if we disown him, he will also disown us? The word deny can mean apostate. And apostate very simply means to stand against Jesus Christ. And what I believe this passage is communicating, and when we look at it in the context of what's been discussed in 2 Timothy, it's talking about what about those people who have come into the church and who turn their back on God and walk away? The first two statements were statements of hope. And the we, I believe, refers to all of those who are a part of the fellowship of the church. And so in this passage, when it says, when we disown Him, what it's talking about is the church body. When there are those who are part of the church body who disown God, who deny Him, who turn away and walk away, and they do that for good, God, in turn, disowns them. But here's the thing. I believe that the people that he's referring to who walk away and never turn back did not have an initial relationship with God in the first place. They disown him because it's a demonstration of their character and their nature all along. And I have biblical authority for this idea. In 1 John chapter 2 verse 19 John addresses this exact same issue when he was talking about antichrists who were in the church and then turned away from Christ and not only turned away from him, but were against the true Christ of the Bible. What happened? The Scripture says, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going, now look at the last part of this, their going showed that none of them belonged to us. They were never there in the first place. They disowned Christ because it was in their nature to do so because they were not a child of God in the first place. God will not look to those who apostatize and accept them because they made some sort of external profession of their faith in Jesus Christ and then go back to doing what they were all along. A couple of other passages also talk about this. One of my favorites, I always try to work this into a sermon because it's so gross. (laughs) 2 Peter chapter 2. And here's what the Scripture says. Of them, and he's talking about false teachers who were once a part of the church and then turn around. Now, the first one's a little gross. I hope it's not too near lunch, but this is the idea. A dog returns to its vomit. Now, wait a minute. You take Fifi, the poodle. You put a bow on her. You paint her nails. You let her sleep on the couch. This is Fifi. What's going to happen... When Fifi hurls, she's still a dog, and Fifi's going to go do what dogs do. That's the idea. You can't change someone from the outside and have it happen on the inside. They do what, by nature, they do. And that's the truth of false teachers. When a person has a stellar spot in the church and then turns away, They are demonstrating what their nature was all along. They couldn't pull it off. They couldn't continue to do what they were trying to do because there was nothing there. They demonstrate their nature by that action. Then there's the sow that's washed and goes back to wallowing in the mud. Same illustration. Take a pig and give it a bath. Put it in a nice clean stall and as soon as there's a mud hole somewhere, off to the races. That is what by nature a hog is going to do. That's who they are. And they will demonstrate their nature by their actions. So what these passages are saying is this. One who disowns Jesus Christ, rejects Him, will be rejected by Jesus Christ because they never had that relationship in the first place. And the last part of this passage gives further credence to this. Look at the last couplet. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Remember earlier in the passage we talked about being united with God. What we find in the Word of God is this. My salvation rests in the faithfulness of God, not in my own faithfulness. And I want you to understand why. This morning I taught a class on eternal security, and we discussed this principle. If you begin by grace, that is, God giving us something that we don't deserve, It is inconsistent with the doctrine of grace to say that I am saved by grace, but I am kept in a relationship with God by personal performance. Absolutely contradictory in concept. If it is the grace of God that saves me, it is the grace of God that keeps me. If it is the faithfulness of God to draw me to a relationship with Himself, it is the faithfulness of God to keep me in that relationship because if it were left to me, I would fail. I couldn't help but fail. But God is faithful. Look at some of the passages that talk about faithfulness and the faithfulness of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, it says this, He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is what? Is faithful. My calling and His keeping of me until the day of Christ Jesus, our Lord, based on His faithfulness. So that when I waver in faith, those moments where I am faithless, and that's what that first part of the verse is talking about. If we are without faith, He still remains faithful. You know, sometimes my faith can get weak. Don't raise your hands on this, but how many of you have had doubts? Doubts about God? Doubts about His Word? Those momentary doubts that flood your mind? At what point do those doubts become denial? It's a hard Question They answer. You know what the scriptures saying? Don't worry about it because He who called you into a relationship with Him is faithful. Trust God. Wait those doubts out. Allow those doubts to strengthen your faith as you come through them and you'll find that God is faithful to keep you strong in Him. As a pastor, I've counseled many people who struggle with crippling doubts about their salvation. They've invited Christ into their life, and they wonder, am I truly in a relationship with Him? And they wonder, am I going to be in heaven? have I muffed it in some way? As a matter of fact, I've talked to some people who are so worried, they're going through Scripture looking through loopholes, you know, looking at loopholes to see where have I messed up and really messed up my relationship and my eternity because of something I've done or said or thought. Listen, thank God. It's the faithfulness of God that sees us through. And to say that I have to be faithful to the end is basically saying arrogantly, I might add, that I can do it, that I can make it, that I can be what I need to be to somehow satisfy God. God's faithfulness is what holds us and keeps us in that relationship with Him. Look at this passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, but the Lord is faithful And He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing well and will continue to do these things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Who puts us in God's love and Christ's perseverance? God. And as we depend on Him, we see Him deliver in a mighty way. Let me encourage you this morning. If you've struggled with doubts, set them aside temporarily and say the one who called me is faithful. I can count on the fact that he loves me, that in his word he has said that he will save me, and I can rest in that truth. It's a miserable thing to wonder where you stand with God. Now, some of you have never come into the place to where you've trusted Christ as your Savior. And those doubts and those concerns are well-founded because you have nothing to hang a relationship with God on. Remember the passage that said, these things have I written that you may know that you have eternal life and this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. What the Scripture is telling you is you need to come into that relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. You need to recognize that you're a sinner. You need to recognize that you do not have a relationship with God the Father and that God provided His Son to come and die on the cross to take upon Himself the penalty that we all owe because of our sin. And when He died on that cross, He dealt with our sin, and we can experience forgiveness. But you know what that requires? Repentance. Coming to the place where I change my mind about myself and about God. I recognize that sin has made a mess of my life and that I need the provision that God has made. I can't do it on my own. I can't be good enough. I can't do enough for God to accept me. It's when we come to the place where we look and we say, I need what Christ did for me. And by faith, trust, take God at His word that when Jesus died on the cross, it was sufficient to forgive me of all my sin and to transform me and make me a new person in Jesus Christ. And you know the way that I and many in this sanctuary expressed that faith to God was through prayer. We just very simply expressed our heart to God's that we were helpless, that we were hopeless sinners that needed to be changed by God. So let me encourage you this morning if you've never come to the place to where you have truly done that in your relationship with God, recognized your need, recognized God's provision, and claimed that provision for yourself, today's the day. Don't put it off. Don't wait it out. Embrace that truth. And child of God, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, The evil one seeks to frustrate the work of God in your life. One of his favorite tools is lack of confidence in your relationship with God. Think about it. If you are unsure of where you stand with God, it's going to affect your prayer life. It's going to affect your evangelism. Who wants to share Christ with somebody else when we don't know where we stand with him? It's going to affect your obedience, your fellowship with God. So many different levels will be affected if you don't have that confidence. Don't go with your feelings. Go with what the Word of God has said. Because that is our objective standard of truth. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God, and He will not disown you you can rest in that truth. The hymn that we've looked into today is a hymn of great hope. It's also a hymn of warning for those who turn away. But it's also a hymn of confidence that God holds us and keeps us. And we can have great hope and great delight in that fact. May God comfort those who are believers that are immobilized by doubt. But may, he also convict those who have never come to that place to where they've trusted Christ as their Savior of their need. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text.